Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 409 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find a wonderfully supportive writing community and some fantastic writing courses. I'm here with my partner in crime, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of so many things, the Mapmaker Chronicle series, the Adaban Cypher series, and her latest book is The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery. How are you, Al? Oh, that's a big question this week. I, oh. I look, I'm, I'm, there's a couple of things I am. Okay. I hope everyone's prepared for this because I know I don't usually have a couple of things to be. But I am, I'm excited because um, technically I'm on my way to the Capricorn Coast Writers yes. Festival. Yes, um, yes, yes. But I'm also on tenterhooks because, you know, with the way the COVID situation mm. is, you know, am I actually going to get on the plane? Um, yes. So there's that sort of going on in my life. And I'm a little bit excited about that because uh, prior to the festival, I'm going to be spending a day or two with my dear friends, Megan Daly and Alison Rushby um, oh, yes. from the Your Kids Next Read community, Facebook community. So I've got this kind of great week uh, ahead of me, mm. assuming all goes to plan. So I've got excitement and I've got trepidation. Yes. And in the middle of all that as well, I mean, can you cope with this, everyone? Like I've gone <laughs> from like just your basic fair to middling to all the things at once. Um, the we I'm also, you know, I know you all understand my pain here, but <laughs> I am trying to prepare look, kind of my beautiful old house that I adore and love oh, yes. for sale. And oh, so I am trying to live in this house without looking like I live in this house, if you know what I'm saying. I so absolutely know what you're saying. <laughs> it is, and with two two teenagers and a husband and a dog, this mm. is just not an easy feat. Like, I, where, where do we get to this point in our lives that we have to pretend we don't live in our house, houses to sell our houses? Like, when did this happen? I don't remember it being like this last time I sold a house, which was admittedly, 10 years ago, but still, like, it's crazy. Yes, because you're crazy? selling the dream. You're selling the dream. <laughs> but it's the dream without me having to look like I don't live in it. Like, honestly, if you could see this house, this is the dream. I am living the dream here, like absolutely living the dream, albeit, you know, slightly, you know, old dream, but still, right, I'm living the dream. Um, but I have to live the dream without looking like I'm living the dream and it's really difficult. And I keep saying to people, but I have to work here as well. It's really hard. I know. Anyway. I had to pack away because I recently sold my house, as you know, and I had to pack away my desk and computer and all of that and like stick it in a cupboard and kind of have to bring it out every time I needed to use it or every time I needed to podcast. It was just well, this ridiculous. Is, yeah. Like I just said to them, I, I said, look, there's a, there's, there are there are so many things that I will do um, to look like I don't live in this house, but that's not one of them. No. You know, I'm sorry, but that is not one of them. I have to be able to conduct my job and that's what I'm going to be doing. Yes. So and- I have, I cleared, and this is what, you know what? I cleared every single thing off my desk for photo day. We had yeah, the dreaded yeah. photo day yeah. and then they didn't photograph this room. Oh, that's ridiculous. That was just rude. I thought that was rude. I said, are you kidding me? I have, And he goes, well, you know, we've got these other ones and we don't want to put too many photos up because, you know, we want people to come and see it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea what it took to get to this point? Anyway, yes. anyway, so that's how I'm feeling, people. I'm slightly head up. 
I'm yeah. excited and I'm full of trepidation. What about you? Wow. Like, where do you fit? Where do you fit into that washing well, machine mix? I'm obviously That's just. Um, a couple of months on because we've now sold uh, and so I've I've just gone through that and come out the other end and I can actually retrieve all my books because my, the books had to go, right? Oh, the, books, the books were the first thing to go. That oh, was, my God. oh, the books have gone. I had somebody try to contact me the other day to buy a book from me, a signed yes. copy of a book, and I had to say, I'm so sorry, but until I can get to the bookshop to buy a book to then sell, send to you, I can't do that because I don't have any here. <laughs> All in oh, I completely understand. So obviously I'm coming at the tail end, but last week somebody bought from me online four artworks and ordinarily you would go, you'd be really excited. And then I just had to go, where in the world are they? Yeah. <laughs> so what, thankfully what, I found what them. What dot did they have on those? Did they end up in storage? Did they end up, you know? <laughs> yes, where are exactly. So I hmm. had a good old time in storage. But anyway... This is what's going on in the lives of Val and Al, but we do actually write. In fact, I was busy trying to meet a deadline right then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, in the middle of all that, I've also been, you know, proofreading The Wolf's Howl to go to print. Yes. And, yeah, oh, yeah, it's been fun, she says, <laughs> not sounding convincing at all. Yeah. So, listeners, you're probably going to hear a little bit more about the tales of Val and Al moving because <laughs> it seems to be a never-ending process. Uh, but we will move on to the world of writing and publishing. Now, Al, you have a really interesting link for us. I checked it out before we started recording and it's really cool. Yes. So um, one of our listeners, Mason Engel, uh, who is in our podcast community and um, clearly a podcast listener, because I just said he was, um, has <laughs> reached out to me. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Like, obviously, I'm as organized in my house as I am in my head. Um <laughs> has reached out to me with this extremely interesting project that he's been doing. So he mm. is um, releasing a book. He's a he's an indie published author and he's releasing a book and he has created a little documentary about yeah. – it's, it's a great – it's called The Books Tour, a documentary. Mm. Um, and then the, the sort of, you know, the, the sub tag is an author's bookstore road trip to find the one thing Amazon can't sell. Mm. Um, and so I'll read you the synopsis of it. It's a great little thing. It's called, it says, when a self-published author started visiting the most unique indie bookstores around the country, he's in the US, he intended to promote his novel on Amazon. But that didn't last long. He realised there was a priceless something the everything store couldn't sell. On a new cross-country road trip, dozens of bookseller interviews reveal what that something is. The number one unexpected reason we should all shop indie. Um, and all, I know, isn't it great? All mm. uh, proceeds from the film's release will benefit the Book Industry Charitable Foundation. So How wonderful. Um, I'll share a link. There's a little, um, you know, a little trailer on trailer, yeah. uh, that you can have a look at on, um, you know, YouTube. Uh, so I'll put the link in the, in the show notes, but definitely like what a great project and what a terrific idea, Mason. What a great idea. Yeah. Such a great idea. I love that you've done this. I love that you've, you know, filmed it, made a documentary out of it. Um, it's a terrific way to not only promote indie bookstores but to promote your book and yourself. Mm. So as an author, um, you know, promotional tool, just a really great idea. And we're so excited. I'm so excited that you reached out to us yeah. to um, to help you share this. Uh, so we will put the link in the show note. You'll find it at thebookstourfilm.com um, and you'll find the trailer, et cetera, there. And 
um, I think that it's definitely worth having a look at. And I hope you'll all get on board and have a look at what Mason's up to. Yeah, it's a it's a great trailer, really, really well done. And, you know, I love indie bookstores because I think one of the things about indie bookstores is that the owner or whoever the person responsible it is for buying curates it in such a way that it, there's a certain bent to it. So there's a certain feel, there's a certain vibe in that indie bookstore that mm. attracts a certain t- group of people and you just mm-hmm. feel really at home there, don't you, in yeah, certain you bookstores? You just that every second book you kind of love, and it's a process of discovery. It's really cool. Yeah, it is, and that's that's why we have favorite bookstores. That's why we yes. we get attached to certain to certain bookstores. The collection. There's something about the way that everything's presented. There's something about the conversations that you have with the bookseller about yeah. you because you know that these people are passionate about what about what they do about the books they sell there's always going to be a recommendation they're always going to have you know I like this oh you should try yes. that um and it's definitely it's a it's a different process to kind of going into a into a supermarket or into somewhere else mm. I'm not, not really a supermarket but you know like <laughs> a Kmart or something like that to buy a book um mm. because the collection will be different like you're going to see things yes. in an indie bookstore that you will not see anywhere else and it's a vibe mm, and I Mm. the thing I love about it as as compared to say you know buying a book on Amazon per se um I find browsing hard on Amazon like yes if you know what you're looking for then awesome but if you don't know what you're looking for you, you don't you can't get that sense of finding like items grouped together and and standing there and going well I really liked that author and then having mm. someone say to you well then you will really like this author I there's just you know I love a good bookshop browse and I'm sure you do too though Oh, absolutely. And it's not just the conversations with the staff because it attracts a certain type of person or, you know, there's a certain vibe that everyone resonates with. Often the the just the browsers will say to each will look at each other, go, Oh, that's a really good book, or that's that'll really work or Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, you'll love that. Kids will love that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In fact I'm looking at the book that's on my desk right now that I'm reading and it's called uh The Riviera Set by Mary S. Lovell and it was published in two thousand and seventeen. Now, there's no way I would have found that on Amazon. Because it was just happened to be there at the bookstore amidst the other books that I was browsing and it attracted my attention and I bought it. And that's the magical process of discovery, right? So, yes, love it, love it, love it. All right. No doubt we'll be both hanging out in bookstores in the next week. Let's move on. Two, this is so exciting. We have our competition this week. And now I love this because the book, Hello Baby, is by Shelley Unwin, who is one of our alumna. And we have three copies of Hello Baby. And I'm just so thrilled at the trajectory of Shelley's career because yeah. before she turned 40, she decided she wanted to be published before she turned 40 and she did our courses and she worked on her books and she achieved exactly that. She got published like a few months before she turned 40 and now she's on, I don't even, I can't have lost track. 
you know, she's multiple books later. Mm. Anyway, this is called Hello Baby, an adorable picture book that celebrates the arrival of a new baby. And it's by Shelley Unwin with gorgeous illustrations by the best-selling illustrator Jetta Robard. This sweet story perfectly captures the special feelings that arrive with a new baby. And it's a great way to welcome that bundle of joy into hearts and homes. Shelley Unwin is the author of the Your One series, Blast Off, and there's a baddie running through this book. So she completed writing picture books, the course writing picture books at the Australian Writers' Centre to start her author career and hasn't looked back since. So very exciting. We have three copies to give away. You can win one of those three copies. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Uh, entries close on the 14th of June. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. All right. So, Al, <laughs> are you ready for the word of the week? Oh, can we just take a moment to discuss Adrian Beck? Uh, just before oh, okay, you do sure. this, because Adrian Beck, who yes. is a friend of this podcast, we've actually yes. interviewed him on Hi, the podcast. Adrian. He's a very funny children's uh, book yes. author. And Adrian Beck suggested, had the gall, had the hide to suggest on the Writer Centre Instagram uh, post about something that Word of the Week should have its own podcast. <laughs> me on his suggestion. Love that, Adrian. <laughs> oh, I, well, Adrian, I just want to say, Adrian's got a book, a picture book coming out next month, I think, which is all about dad jokes. And all I can uh, say is he is the perfect man to write this book. I think it's going to be perfect. But yeah, Word of the Week will never have its own podcast while I am <laughs> here and breathing. But anyway. All right. So you yes, I'm, now, that well. I, now that I've got that off my chest, I'm ready for the Word of the Week, Val. Okay. Elia Mozaneri. Oh, seriously. Elia Mozaneri. I know. Are you saying that right? I think so because I'm reading the, you know, the special phonetic version. Elia Mozaneri. So you probably have never heard of this because it is almost impossible to pronounce. Yes. And not surprisingly, it's not a very popular word, but it is real. It is real. And it is an adjective meaning relating to charity or charitable donations. Oh, so it would Uh fit with Mason's documentary. Possibly, yes, yes. Mm. Yes, that's exactly right. Did you see how I did that, bringing this together so that it made sense? It made sense, yes. Continue. Um, So I popped this into the Google Ngram viewer and it actually, this word, Elian (laughs) Mosinari, dropped out of use around 1900 and it like disappeared almost from books. And I did try to search it on Project Gutenberg, which, you know, has lots of out of copyright books and there weren't many examples, but there was this. The committee was an eleemosynary body for the bestowal of national charity upon shipbuilders. <laughs> but you know, as you say, with Mason's book, we could use it in a sense, uh, not book, book, um, documentary. The, the, the film, uh, we could use it to describe that as well. Okay, well, if he you has can an come up with a sense, if you well, can come up with a sensible... Yes, sensible uh-huh. sentence. I'm waiting. Yeah. He, well, Mason has an Elia Mosinari documentary. <laughs> Mason, I would like to see that on a tagline for the poster, if that's possible. If you just throw that out there. Can we just go back here, though? I'm actually more interested 
in yeah. the way that you go about doing this. You searched yeah. Project Gutenberg for starters, which is yeah. I would never have thought of doing. But anyway, what is Google Ngram Viewer? What is that? Oh, it's like, um, well, just mm-hmm. Google it. Oh, stop. <laughs> I'm asking you. Because you can't I, bring I up would... something like that without telling me what it is. That's rude. Because I would probably um, express it incorrectly. So I'm going to go to the oracle of some knowledge, not all knowledge. <laughs> so Wikipedia says that it is an online search engine that charts the frequencies of how of, of any set of search strings for a yearly count of n-grams found in sources be- printed between, wait for it, 1500 and 2019. So you, so you put a word in and it tells you its frequency. Kind of, yeah. Oops. There you go. Oh, you learn something new every day, Val. You constantly surprise me. That's all I can say. <laughs> and it's got nothing to do with word of the week and everything to do with Val. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's move on well, because that's probably that, time. <laughs> that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Margaret Morgan's novel, The Second Cure, is out now through Penguin Books Australia, and it's also being turned into a mini-series. Here's what Margaret says. Hi, my name is Margaret Morgan. I'm an author. Um, I've just had my first novel published and I'm working on my second. I've been a writer all my life, um, either professionally or just for fun, and squeezed into other professions, but um, it's definitely where I'm staying now. I decided to do the course at uh, the Australian Writers' Centre, Write Your Novel, the six-month course, when a friend told me about it. And I realised it was exactly what I needed at that point to help me get the novel written and to give me the kind of support I needed. I was prompted to take the course specifically because I wanted the kind of encouragement and support that a six-month ongoing course would allow me. The tutor in the course was really fantastic, somebody who's written many, many novels herself and um, is very encouraging and really is good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses in writing. One of the impacts that the course has had on me has been to demonstrate to me that I actually can be a writer, can be a novelist specifically. It has allowed me to make connections that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make within the industry. And probably one of the best things about it is the writing group that was formed with a bunch of us in that particular course. And that was like, what, three or four years ago. We're still meeting every month and critiquing each other's work. And it's a really valuable thing. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that I really could be a novelist. And that was such a revelation to me and such a delight. It was something I'd always wanted and suddenly now I've got it. I would say you really should join the Australian Writers' Centre because It's staffed by real professionals. It's a really good, well-structured organisation that's got great courses that are practical as well as inspiring. Anyone who's thinking of doing one should really think about it very seriously because it's a very, very valuable organisation and the courses are terrific. 
Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novel writing. All right, so let's move on to who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Well, I think it must be like a community episode because this week we are talking to Emma Gold, who is a terrific member of our podcast community. Um, I often share her blog posts. She has a terrific uh, mm. blog um, where, which has not been as frequently updated lately because she's been a bit busy promoting her book, her debut novel, The Breaking. Um, so we had a chat about the novel, about blogging, about editing and about a whole bunch of other things. So here's Emma. Emma Gold is an award-winning Australian author and editor. Her short fiction has been widely published in journals and anthologies and her debut collection, Two Steps Forward, was selected from more than 450 manuscripts to be published by a firm press in 2011. Irma is the author of three picture books for children with two more on the way and her debut novel, The Breaking, was published by Midnight Sun in March this year. Welcome to the program, Emma. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to have you because you are, in fact, a very enthusiastic participant in the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. And I have shared with a terrific blog, I'm just going to put that out there, a terrific blog, and I've shared many posts of yours over the years um, from your blog. Um, So, you know, we're very excited to have you here with us today. Yeah, it's kind of strange to be on the podcast, having listened to it so many times before. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be your voice in everyone's ears. Brace yourself. (laughs) All right. Um, So let's go. Let's go back to the start. When did you start writing fiction and what was your road to sort of first being published? Well, I guess I always wrote fiction. You know, I was that kid sitting on my bedroom floor writing stories, but I never really imagined imagined that I could actually be an author. You know, you hear about people who say, oh, I knew I wanted to be a writer from the beginning, but I just didn't even imagine that that was something you could actually do. And when I left school, you know, the only thing I was told that somebody who loved books and writing could be was a journalist, which I had decided I didn't want to do. So I just kind of went off overseas and did that that thing where you just go and travel and work terrible jobs. And during that time, I actually stopped writing for the first time in my life. And it was at that point when I realised how much a part of me it was and um, how how much I needed it. And I decided to come back to Australia and study writing. And that's when I kind of started in earnest, I guess, and started writing short stories and, and getting short fiction published. So did you, you went to university when you say you studied writing, you went to you yeah. did a degree in creative writing? I did, yes, at the University of Canberra, where I then ended up teaching editing for 10 years. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you started out with um, short fiction. That was sort of where you were first, you know, published. What what drew you to short stories, you know? Was it like as a starting point or was it the, the form of that that you loved? I guess it's both really. And and short fiction is something that, that happens quite naturally at university. But, of course, I'd already been writing those kind of things myself previously I do love the form, though, and unlike a novel, you can hold a short story in your head all at the one time. It's much harder with a novel. You think, Mm. did I write that or not? Or, Mm. you know, that bit that I cut, (laughs) is it there or not? Um, But with with a short story, you can hold it all in your head at once. And I love 
the 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 feeling that you enter a short story and that world has already begun and then you leave the short story and the world will continue on uh it's like that brief moment in time but there can be so much depth in uh short fiction so yeah i really love the form so what's your writing process for short fiction is it you know is that something that you just sort of like get an idea and start writing something or is there a is there a plan for that or you know how did how do you approach writing a short story i'm not a planner at all uh often it's a character and a place that arrive in my imagination simultaneously i've thought about this quite a lot place is really important to me in writing and I feel like place is often its own character almost, and the same in my in my novel as well. Place is so important, but characters too. And usually it's very much character-driven rather than driven by an idea. But I'm not very – I actually haven't written any short stories for quite some time because I'm not very good at uh, writing multiple things at once. So when I'm working on a novel – that's all I can do. I can't, you know, a lot of people will go off and, and write, take a break and write a short story over here or do something else. I really get an idea and then I have to run with it and just stick with that one thing. So um, I wrote The Breaking and now I'm writing another novel. So I haven't actually really written much short fiction in the last couple of years. Okay, so I, I want to go into The Breaking in, in a bit of detail in a little minute. So I'm just going to put that to one side for a moment because I, I'm interested in the switch uh, from writing short fiction to, you know, writing a novel, um, a sizable novel. How many words are in The Breaking? Oh, 70,000, just over 70,000, I think. Yeah, okay. So did, is it the first thing that you ever wrote and did you find the switch to, I mean, the first long form, I mean, mm. um, novel that you ever wrote and did you find that switch to writing a novel um, a difficult kind of transition? So I did actually write, I guess, a novel zero, which took me seven years when my kids were very little and I was writing it really in the cracks of life and that book gosh, there was, it was revised so many times, so many versions. Uh, I got an agent for that book and it got very close with a couple of publishers but didn't make it. And, you know, since returned to it a, a few times, but I'm actually glad that it's not a strong, strong enough book really. I think there were some inherent problems with it, which is why it didn't ever completely get up in the end. Mm. And funnily enough with The Breaking, I actually – almost tricked myself into writing a novel. I didn't actually think I was writing a novel to begin with. I actually wrote what is the first chapter as a short story and I took it to my short fiction group and they said, well, this is great, but, you know, what happens next? So I thought, oh, okay, I'll go and write a second linked story. So I went away and did that and brought that back to the group and they were like, well, this is great, but what happens next? And one <laughs> of the... Um, one of the writers in the group, John Clancy, said, I think you might be writing a novel. And I was like, oh, I think I might be. Oh, <laughs> so, so you, you weren't even sure. <laughs> so I worked my way into it. I totally tricked myself. So before I knew it, I think I, I wrote another section and I already had 20,000 words. So I was, I was into it. I was on my way. Um, and it was unlike with the novel Zero, which – as I said, was such a long process and I didn't really know what I was doing. But I guess at the end of it, I did feel, okay, well, I actually managed to write a full-length work, which was something. But the breaking was 
just such the first draft just flowed out effortlessly. I don't think I'll ever have that experience again. It was really just I actually felt like the characters were leading me by the hand and just that first draft just kind of spooled out. It was just a really joyful experience. All right. Well, let's let's talk about the breaking then. Tell us Tell us about the breaking. Give us the elevator pitch, Emma. What have you got for us? <laughs> well, it's about two young Australian girls who meet in Thailand and get involved with rescuing elephants from the tourism industry. So the, the book is told through the eyes of Hannah and she's she's very inexperienced. She doesn't quite know where she's going, what she's doing. She's wrestling with issues of identity and sexuality and, and she meets Devon who is so outgoing and outspoken and feisty and, you know, knows exactly who she is and what she wants and she sweeps Hannah into her orbit and, and yeah, together they get involved and go deeper and deeper into the world of um, elephant tourism. And what so as that sort of developed, as you said, you started out writing a short story and then a short story and then it all became linked and you had to start sort of thinking about where was this going? What was the structure of this? How is this going to end? Um, did you sort of have an end point in mind at any point or were you literally just flying by the seat of your pants the whole time? <laughs> no, I didn't have an end point in mind. And um, in in the first instance, I didn't even know that I was going to be writing about elephants. So the, the book is really... Uh, it's really driven by the two main characters and the landscape through which they're moving is this elephant tourism. But I didn't know when I started writing that first short story that this was actually going to take that form. And I think that's a good thing because the book is very much character driven. And I think if it were, if I'd had the idea and thought, okay, how am I going to write about the situation for elephants in Thailand? It would have been a very different book and I think it would have been probably a polemic book, but instead it's actually really about these two characters. And I've forgotten what your original question was. <laughs> so have I. It was all, becoming, it was all getting so interesting. I'm sitting here frantically thinking about elephant tourism in, in Thailand and this is obviously something that you've got a great interest in um, and so as you've kind of been writing the story and the characters have, you know, found themselves in this world, have you found, like, are there a lot of things that bubble up for you as as the manuscript is unfolding? Yeah, so I, I started writing what I thought was that short story when I'd come back from a trip to Thailand and a trip from Thailand where I was volunteering with uh, rescued elephants in a sanctuary there and then during the process of writing the book, I realised that I needed to go much deeper and return to Thailand and worked on a number of different projects while I was there. So I really did draw on those experiences in writing the book. And there was that point where I realised I had to do more research and not only, you know, on the ground with elephants, but also did a lot of other research and reading as well in the process. But the last third of the book, in fact, even though that first draft flowed out flowed out of me, the last third didn't have quite the same energy that the first two had. So when I was writing it, I was only working two mornings a week because I work full time as an editor. So I just carved out sort of three hours, two mornings a week. And that actually worked really well for me because every time I sat down, I would just kind of go. Mm. But the last third didn't have the same energy as the first two. And after I got some feedback uh, from, from you know, a couple of writing friends, I realised that actually what I needed to do was ditch that whole part 
and take it in a completely different direction. And as soon as I started writing that, I knew immediately, like even that first session, I knew that it was going in the right direction, that it had the same energy as those first two parts. So I guess that's one of the drawbacks of being someone who is a pantser (laughs) that I ended up having to throw away, I don't know, I think it might have been 25,000 words or something like that and start again from scratch. So how many drafts did you end up going through until you sort of got it to the point where you were happy to submit it? I always find the draft question really difficult because so often I might be working on a section of it. I always Mm. think of a whole draft as going through the whole thing, but, you know, that didn't happen very many times. If I So you know, often I might be reworking a section. So, for example, rewriting the whole of part three, but then, you know, part one and two might not need much revision as I go. I do, I do, I think probably partly because I work as an editor and because I love um, words and the structure of sentences, I'm someone who does edit as I write. So the, right. the pleasure for me is in the sentences rather than the idea of, you know, just getting it all down, which is a common thing that that writers get told to do, but it doesn't work for me. So, so you know, as I go through, I'm probably quite a slow writer because I am working those sentences. And it does mean when you have to throw out a lot of words, they're actually already decently constructed words. So it does make it a bit harder to throw them out. But you, I do that mental trick where it's like I copy and paste it into another file you know, that I can use and go back to if I want to. And, of course, I never will, but, you know, it psychologically helps me let go of it. it does, I'm not at just... least you know they're still there if you ever <laughs> yeah, need exactly. them for any yeah. random purpose. They'll be right there <laughs> waiting for you, right? And I, that, I will never use those words, but it, it helped me no, <laughs> to I, let I, go. I, I do the same thing. I just sort of have a little trash file yeah. that I just yeah. keep everything in and it's all just still <laughs> sitting there. All those words, yeah. all, you know, waiting, clamouring for attention. Yeah. Never be used. Yes. Um, why do you think this story, this manuscript, became your first published novel as opposed to your other one? Well, I think it's a better book for starters, like a much, much better book. And I do also think the, even though, as I said, the story is really driven by um, the two women, and it's re- they're really the heart of the book. But the issues around elephant tourism. Uh, a lot of people are fascinated by it and almost nobody knows about what actually happens. Mm. So for most people, reading the book is a real revelation. I've only met a couple of people who are aware of what the situation actually is. And there's no other book so far as I'm aware that actually deals with um, the elephant tourism in Thailand in terms of a novel, I mean. So, Mm. so it's, it's, you know, it's an unusual book, I suppose, in that sense. And yet at the same time, it deals with a very common experience, which is, you know, Australians are big travellers and, you know, go pre-COVID, went uh, went overseas and travelled a lot. So it's a kind of common experience. And, um, you know, pre-COVID, there were sort of 40 million tourists going to Thailand every year, engaging with all these kinds of um, animal experiences. Mm. So... So I think maybe it's the combination of those two things. I don't know. I find it quite hard to analyse in my own work, to be honest. I just thought, yeah, I thought, you know, you were talking about the way that the your work as an editor impacts on that writing process and I just wondered if, you know, as an editor, when you're writing something like that and you get to the end of it, you think, oh, there's definitely legs in this. Do you know what I mean? Like and can you tell in your own work? Yeah, it's so tricky. I think you can, yeah. <laughs> 
I think there's some things you can tell, but other things you just, you're still, you know, I need editors just like any other writer. You're just not objective enough. There are things that I think, so for example, I was very conscious of pacing and the idea that you really need to always be uh, moving the reader forwards. And as somebody who comes from, my background is kind of that I love words and sentences, as I was saying before. So for me, the pacing and the plot is not something that comes as naturally. It's something I have to work at. So it's been quite delightful, actually, to get one of the, the responses that I get so commonly is that the book just you really moves you forward, real, like the pacing's really strong. And so that was, that's been really nice to hear because I don't think that has always been my strength. And that's definitely something that I've learnt from being an editor. And then there's all sorts of other little things that you learn from being an editor, like everyone has their go-to words that Mm, they, and it's different for every writer. And when you're the editor and you look at someone's manuscript, you can, I mean, you just pick it straight away, all the words that the writers use. But when it's your, you know, for your own work, you have to think, okay, (laughs) what are the words that I'm loving and overusing here? So, you know, it's big picture and little picture, but you still, you know, I worked with quite a lot of editors on this, not just the editors at my publishing house. I also, uh, before that, you know, I, I employed all of my editor friends to to work on the book at various stages with me. So I got a lot of feedback because I really value that process. And I, I do think you just can't see the things you would in somebody else's manuscript. You need someone else. You need that outside eye. Um, Now, you mentioned earlier that you worked with a short fiction group um, and that they were the ones that gave you the feedback on those initial Mm. chapters. Is that that your writing group? Like is the how long have you been sort of with that group for? Yeah, sadly that group is disbanded. We all – I know, it was so great. And and actually I kind of handpicked the people in that group because I'd had some experiences. I think writers' groups can be amazing or they can be actually, Mm. um, you know, they can actually be terrible. And I'd been in a writing group where there were all sorts of kind of dysfunctions going on. So I thought I want to set up my own group with people who I know – you know, can give great feedback, can take great feedback. We're all kind of on the same wavelength. So it lasted for quite a while when we were all doing short stories, but there just came this point where we were all working on much longer form pieces and it just kind of fell apart. We're all still great friends and we meet up, but we haven't um, been meeting as a writing group, which is a shame. But one of the writers, John Clancy, who's a a Canberra writer and, uh, you know, just I think, not as well known as he should be because he's just absolutely brilliant. I worked very closely with him. And so he was in the short story group, but I worked very closely with him on this book uh, before it even got to my agent. So you were asking before about that process and, and I did a lot of work with him. He read a lot of drafts and we talked about the book a lot. Uh, and so by the time it got to my agent and to the, then to the publisher, it was, it was actually very polished. So one of the questions I was going to ask you was, do you work with an agent? And clearly you do because you've been submitting to an agent. Um, As someone who's sort of enmeshed in the publishing process, uh, is having an agent something that's important to you? I think it depends what genre you write in. So I think, for example, children's books, which, you know, I'm also writing, it's not so necessary. But I think for literary fiction it can be really valuable simply because, there's it, literary fiction is such a small percentage of the market. I think it's only about three percent, 
and there are so many people writing it. So having an agent means that you are going to get your book directly in front of, you know, the people, the editors, the head editors, Mm. senior editors, Mm. which just makes such a difference. And also, you know, your agent can hassle them in a way that you can't Mm. so that they get an answer and you can then, if they say no, you can move on to the next one. And it's just, yeah, the the only thing that can be challenging when you have an agent is if you get a couple of rejections from publishers and they all come back in the same same batch from the agent that can be really disheartening <laughs> and I did have a few of those it's a bad day <laughs> yeah it's a it's not a good day it's not a good day <laughs> um so with a job you know you work as a freelance editor you have a family um now you mentioned that you when you were writing the breaking you were working sort of two mornings a week on it are you, is that sort of still what you're doing like how do you fit the writing into your to your existence it's so hard uh, so I, I seem to have had a different routine for everything. So it's, and it really varies around what's happening with my children and my work. So that was my routine for the breaking where I just had two, three hour slots and I aimed to write a thousand words in each of those sessions. And sometimes I would write a bit less. Sometimes I might write 700, sometimes I might write 1500, but it all kind of balanced out. And really the reason why I set that, um, sort of schedule up was because I wanted Thailand to still be very fresh in my mind. So I wanted to write it for me fairly quickly. And that process took eight months. And then what I would do is I would just, you know, with my editing work, it meant I would have to work evenings or weekends to make up quite often for that time that I'd taken. But I'm now working on another novel and I finished the second draft and I've got feedback from the wonderful Tegan Bennett Daylight and I'm really, really keen to get onto that third draft. But at the moment I'm not able to do any writing just because I've been doing all of the publicity for the breaking and, as you know, it can be really quite all-consuming it takes up so much time. So I'm hoping maybe in the next month or so I will be able to, I don't think I'm going to be able to carve out two mornings a week at this at this stage, but even one morning a week, if I could even just do that, <laughs> just something. Just the one. Something you have to now. Make time, something. make time. It is, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, speaking of that though, was there actually anything like, you know, given that you work in, publishing was there actually anything about the publishing or launching or promoting or any aspect of you know bringing the breaking out that surprised you as being the author of it I think because I am so involved with publishing I am quite cynical and was prepared for the worst Mm. and so you know I was prepared for bad reviews and criticism and you know the book not to sell or you know all of those things that can happen so the thing that surprised me is that it's just been so incredibly wonderful I just the reviews have been amazing I haven't had a bad review yet I'm touching wood as I say that (laughs) I'm also touching wood now (laughs) I, I haven't checked Goodreads recently I should say which you know Goodreads is always dangerous you never know what's on there uh but, yeah, and just the, the responses from readers and from people who I really admire as well. Uh, you know, I just got an amazing email from Peggy Frew, who's a writer I admire so much, 
And just, you know, the things she said about the book, honestly, I could I could dine off that for the next few years. <laughs> well, that's a good surprise. And, and we like that yeah, kind of surprise. surprise. <laughs> and then the other, one, the other ones that have been wonderful are people who've lived in Thailand, you know, for many, many years or Thai people who've written to say that, you know, I've got Thailand right and that I've avoided all of the kind of cliches that people think of. And, you know, I worked really hard at that. I consulted a lot of uh, a lot of my Thai friends and um, I had several people reading the book in terms of the, the usage of Thai language. So, you know, those kind of emails just have been amazing. So the surprises have all been good ones. Well, that's <laughs> very, very encouraging to hear. Um, now, what about promoting the book? What kind, like you said, you were sort of surprised by how well it had all gone, but what sorts of things have you actually been doing to promote the book? Yeah, so I have been working really hard and I suppose that's one of the benefits of understanding the industry is you often, I think, uh, new writers are not aware of how much and how proactive they actually need to be. They kind of think that the the publisher and the publicist are going to do everything for them, but really if you want your book to do well, you have to be really proactive. So, for example, one of the things that I did was I did a book tour, which my publisher did organize it but I was the one who said right I'm going to fly into Brisbane I'm going to drive down the coast for two weeks end up in Melbourne and I'm going to visit all these bookshops along the way so they then organized that for me but I did kind of put that tour program together so I started it was in March so there was still a lot of nervousness around events but I did do an event in uh, Brisbane started up there and then finished with an event in Melbourne and there certainly could have been others that I'd done along the way if we were not in COVID times. But I visited about 60 bookshops all up and that was amazing. And I actually learnt things too. Like, for example, there was this one bookseller who said to me, you know, she was the manager of the store and she said, you know, but sometimes I won't see a book until it's time to return it because if that book has come onto the floor on a day when I'm not working, you know, I might not see it until I've got to package all the stock up and send it back. So, you know, you think about all the books that are coming into bookshops, there's so many books that your book is competing against. And if you go into a bookshop and you chat with the booksellers who are just amazing people who love books and you just can talk about whatever, like we were just I I ended up having a suitcase full of books going back because you'd talk to the booksellers and, they, and you'd end up buying all these other books. And you just have these amazing conversations and then, you know, when you go in they will often have made like a, a presentation of your books in a window display or somewhere else and you sign the books. And it's I think it's I, I just thought that was absolutely invaluable to do that for just those two weeks. Hand-selling to the hand-sellers. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, because they're the people who – who are going to sell your book and if they don't know about it. And, of course, before you come, you know, they'll look up what the book's about as well and they may not have done that otherwise. Yeah. So so the book tour was great and then, of course, I've been doing other events and radio and podcasts like yours and, but, you know, I think just being really proactive and, and trying to get the book out there to as many people as possible. So uh, it's interesting too because it's actually been out a couple of months as we speak. Um, and the other thing I think that new writers do find surprising sometimes is that, you know, they get a two-week window when maybe they will go and, you know, do some booksellers and do some various things. And then after that, you know, they're on their own and they have to continue to promote a book when it's not necessarily the newest thing on the shelves. So what are you doing to promote it 
you know, now, like, because you still have to continue that conversation, even as you're writing the next book, even as you're, you know, doing the various things. So are, yeah. have you sort of changed that at all or ramped up in other areas? I'm still doing some bookshop visits. So like every time I go somewhere, I visit whatever bookshops are along the way. And I've got festivals coming up, which I mean, yeah, which is always so fun. I love doing festivals. I was at the Headland Writers Festival just the other week. uh, And just, you know, the panels are fun. And then hanging out with writers is fun. So always fun. Yeah. All right. So what happens next for Emma Gold? Um, I know you've got a new picture book out in June. So tell us about where the heart is. Yeah, so that's based on a true story. It's uh, about a tiny penguin who's washed ashore on on the um, on a beach off the coast of Brazil, very sick, covered in oil, and was rescued by an old man called Joao, who looked after him, nursed him back to health, and lived with him for quite some time. And then eventually, uh, this little penguin who he named Chinchim travelled uh, back to the coast of Patagonia. And then every year he returns to Joao, which is like an 8,000-kilometre journey, and scientists say they've never seen anything like it. So when I heard about this story, it just completely captivated me and uh, I wrote the book. And it's been illustrated by Susanna Crisp, who this is her first picture book, but she's since signed a billion contracts for other picture books. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that I got her first. And she actually, I mean, she was a perfect person for the book because she has actually been on a boat, you know, off the coast of Brazil to see these penguins. Uh, So it was just, you know, it was amazing having her draw these beautiful illustrations. So, yeah, I'm excited about that too. Fantastic. Now, there's a well-known mantra that picture books are harder than long-form manuscripts. Do you think that's true? I don't I don't think so. I, I I understand that theory. I mean, they are more like poetry. Every single word counts. And I do think they are much more difficult than people think. Mm. There's so many people writing picture books and they're actually a big investment for the publisher, much more so than a novel because of all those illustrations. Mm. Mm. So it's a hugely competitive genre. I think there are more people writing picture books than anything else probably. So I think in that way there's a there's a perception that, oh, you can just dash off a picture book and you really can't, you know, I mean, if you're brilliant, maybe you can, but mostly you actually really can't. You have to work at it uh, very hard. But having said that, the amount of time that you would spend on a picture book compared to a novel and also, you know, the thing that I mentioned before about holding, you know, a whole novel in your head at once, I, I definitely think a novel is more challenging. It doesn't mean that it's easier to get it published. I think probably picture books are the most competitive of all the genres. All right. Thank you so much for that. We are going to finish up today with our usual three top t- three top writing tips for, for writers. <laughs> oh, geez, I did that well, didn't I? Um, so, Emma, I'm sure that you're going to be far more articulate in giving me the tips than I was in asking you for the tips. So can you give us your three top tips for writers, please? Well, I think probably the first one is only listen to the advice that works for you and reject the rest because I think there's so much advice out there and a lot of it is conflicting. And I don't think there's any one right way to do it. So 
you know, I talked before about that idea of just get it all down, which I think works for a lot of people, but it doesn't work for me at all. And, you know, another one is write what you know, whereas that doesn't really interest me. I, I'm much more interested in writing from what I know into what I don't know, which was certainly the case with the breaking and everything that I was exploring in that book. So I think, yeah, there's so much advice out there. And I think if you get locked into thinking it has to be done this way, then you actually can end up really stuffing up your own process. So yeah, what works for you, reject all of the rest. Excellent. Second, I guess, find your own routine, whatever that might be, and then stick to it. And I was saying, you know, my routines have changed, but when I've when I've set a routine that suits me at that particular time for that particular project, I found it really useful to then stick to that routine so that every time you sit down, you're immediately in that mode and you can just go. And it might not be a lot. So again, there's that idea, you know, write every day, but you might, if you're, if you're someone like me with children and full-time work, it might really not be feasible to write every day. I'm not somebody who can get up very early in the morning and, and um, write before the crack of dawn. I just can't do that. And I can't write late at night either. So it's not very helpful, but I think, you know, don't beat yourself up if you can't write every day. I think you just have to find those windows. And I know you've talked about this a lot on the podcast, you know, it might even be on the, you know, train going to work or whenever it is, find those moments. Um, And the third one, which is really important to me, is writing from the heart. And Charlotte Wood has this really brilliant thing that she talks about finding the heat, which is that thing that really excites you and scares you and that you just have to write about. And I think if you're writing about something that you feel that way about, then that will come through on the page. I always remember um, Robin Codwallader, who's a friend of mine, who wrote a book called The Anchoress, which is um, about a woman who seals herself off in, in, in a room um, to worship God for her lifetime. And the editor saying, you know, she never knew that she wanted a book about that until she saw it and it was her passion for that subject matter that just came through in the book so Mm. I think if you write from your heart uh, then people even whether they're interested or not will actually feel that on the page. Fantastic Um, great tips thank you very much for those where can we find out more about you Emma? Oh, my website is imagold.com and everything is there. I-R-M-A-G-O-L-D.com and everything yep. else is there, right? Everything's there, all the links to everything, <laughs> all the good stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate uh, you talking to us. Good luck with the next book. Good luck with the picture book. And um, no doubt we'll be seeing a lot more of you in the future. Thanks, Al. It's been such a delight. All right. Fantastic interview. That's so good to hear from lots of different authors and they're all so different in not only in obviously the types of books they write, but also in their writing process. So always learn something. So what are you doing in the coming week, Al, apart from trepidation and Oh, yeah, well, that's it really. Um, Because if it all happens, like if I, you know, assuming that I am on a plane, um, Mm. I'm going to be away from all of I can go and live my life without worrying about whether or not I've cluttered my decluttering (laughs) so I'll be reveling in that hopefully fingers crossed I want you to imagine me reveling um and that's what I'll be doing for the foreseeable future but what about you what are you up to 
I I have a new toy. Oh no! What is it? Mm. And okay. let me say, I wish I had this toy <clears throat> like three months ago before I sold the last house, right? Mm-hmm. Because as you know, we can't travel anywhere. Well, and I've got, I've spent a lifetime, and I'm talking decades, <laughs> accumulating. Qantas frequent flyer points, like, you know, mm. on like your credit card and through Woolworths or whatever it is that you, however, all the ways that you're trying to accumulate points. And I never use them. And like ever since mm. my whole life. Oh. And yeah, I know, not even on any flight ever. Uh, and it occurred to me a few months ago that the chances of me being able to use them anytime soon is pretty slim. Mm. But you can buy stuff with them. Oh, oh no. Are you just randomly filling up your house with new stuff? Oh, no, no, because I bought this one thing and it cost a lot, like almost like not quite a lifetime supply of points, but a a huge, massive chunk. What did you buy? It is the Dyson V11 (gasps) Animal Stick. (laughs) You bought a (laughs) vacuum cleaner. I've never been so excited about a purchase in my life. We have reached the age where you're going to spend a billion airline points on vacuum cleaner. I'm laughing so much. Oh, Val, what's happened to us? Remember when we were young and fun? Oh, I think we need to wrap up now. That's it. We're done. Oh. But And this is not sponsored in any way, but, you know, the anticipation and then the actual arrival and it did not disappoint. I have been vacuuming the house down. You don't understand. It's got all these attachments. It's so good. <laughs> it's like cordless. Oh, my God. I have no <laughs> Do you know, I remember um, – when I first moved out of home when I was about 18, like the first – I'd just gone to a share house or something for the first time and <laughs> Christmas, my like I was so excited because I'd had no money and I thought, oh, I'm going to get some good presents. I'm really looking mm. forward to seeing what turns up. And my parents gave me a vacuum cleaner. Vacuum cleaner. Mm. And I almost never spoke to them ever again. <laughs> and now here you are just reveling. Yeah. <laughs> You're reveling yeah. in your vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I am. You don't understand. I've even created a little home for it on the wall and I'm looking at it now lovingly. You might, yeah. It's just, Is it it's just in the centre of the wall so everyone can see it? <laughs> like a work of art. Oh, it's beautiful. All right, I think that's it, Val. I don't yes, know if we can top it. that. It's time to say goodbye. All right, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at, <laughs> not vacuuming, <laughs> at alisontate.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-D-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, I know where we're going to find you. <laughs> you'll you'll find me vacuuming because the V11 is 40% more suction than the V10, so I splurged on those points. You're making me snort. Stop. <laughs> I studied it. I researched it. You don't understand. Anyway, you'll find me at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. <laughs> Are you going to hear the vacuum cleaner? I'm going to play <laughs> Yes, I do. Oh, it's not working because I haven't got the attachment on it. Okay. Well, there you go. As far as demonstrations. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 